The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, July 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. All right, welcome to, again, Sunday morning gathering of Redemption Hill Church, the combined, combined congregation edition. Open your Bibles, if you will. We're going to continue our summer psalm series. We're going to be in Psalm 127 this morning. My name's Raymond. For those who don't know me, I'm also one of the pastors here. We'll be in Psalm 127 this morning. And for a little background before we read it, background helps us to understand and appreciate some of the stuff that's going on. The, the Psalm 127 is actually a part of a smaller group of psalms, 15 of them, that start in, in Psalm 120. And they go all the way through Psalm 134. So right in the middle of that is Psalm 127. And those, those 15 songs are known as the songs of ascent. Right? Ascent meaning as the people of God were ascending or going up to Jerusalem every few times a year to celebrate the major feasts and festivals, they would actually sing these songs. Right? So this was like their CD or, or their playlist that they would sing over and over, the way that some of us sing certain songs at Christmas time, right, associated with the holiday. So they would sing these songs on the way up there. So when we get to verse 3, and it actually says here in verse 3 that children are a heritage or a blessing from the Lord, and when they start to celebrate children as, as a reward from God, I want you to remember that that was being said during a very long and difficult road trip. Okay, so... Some of you have kids, I can tell, all right? So it just makes you appreciate it a little bit more, okay? Lord, help us as we go through now and read your word together. Help us to appreciate it as we ought, and even more, help us to apply it to our lives as we ought so that you would be honored, so that we would be changed as you desire, and so that you would get all the glory. We ask that in your name, Jesus, amen. Psalm chapter 127, verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early. All the non-morning people just said amen. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates." Now, I won't go through every detail of that psalm for us, um, but what I want to do is I want to help us look at it a little bit closer than just reading it on the surface. When we look at this psalm a little bit more closely, we'll see that it actually mentions three things that have been a concern for all cultures in all places and at all times, namely building a house, protecting a city, or a nation for that matter, and growing a family. 
Building a house, see that in verse 1. Protecting a city, also there in verse 1. Watching over the city and, verse 3, on growing a family. Now, if you look even more closely, you'll see a deeper connection between those three things. And here's what I mean. The house that Solomon, who wrote this, mentions in verse 1 is, is called the house. Look at, look at verse 1 with me again. Unless the Lord builds, everybody, the house. This is a very particular house. It is a house of worship. This is the temple that David had it in his heart to build for the Lord. And God said, no, David, actually, you can't be the one to build the house. If you want to know why, just go read 1 Chronicles 28. God speaks to David about that very clearly. God chooses Solomon, David's son, to build the house, the temple. And Solomon went about building that house. That is the house he's speaking about. And when we understand that, we begin to see the deeper connection between the three things we just mentioned. This is all about what the people of God must do to provide for the worship of the one true God. Building a house of worship where that worship would be centralized, protecting the city in which that house was built, and then giving rise to another generation that would receive the truth of God and the worship of God and extend it into the future. And the point of the psalmist here, the point that Solomon is making, is that all of our efforts to do those things, to provide, even in our own generation now, to provide what is needed for the proper and true worship of the one true God, to, to, to build his house, to protect what is then established and to sustain it, and then to grow the family of God. Everything needed to do all of that, all of our efforts in that direction will be useless, restless, and fruitless apart from the Lord. You, you see it here. Look at verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, there's still going to be building being done by other people, but those who build it labor, everybody, in vain. It is useless. Our efforts are useless apart from the Lord. Our efforts are also restless apart from the Lord. Verse 1. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. He gets no sleep, no rest. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. And finally, our efforts will be fruitless. Children are a reward, an inheritance, a blessing from God, and, and our efforts would not give rise to another generation to whom we could transfer these very same beliefs, the value systems, the priorities of the people of God as he has revealed them to us. So the question I have for us today, as we look at this psalm and, and even more closely at our own lives, how can you and I go about this business of building the house of God today in our own generation in a way that is not apart from the Lord, but actually being done alongside of him? All right, so what is the house of the Lord today and how can you and I assure ourselves that we are building it not apart from him, but alongside of him? The book of Hebrews gives us a little help answering the question concerning what is the house of God today. And you could find this in a number of places in the Bible. But I will turn to Hebrews chapter 3 very quickly in verses 5 through 6. 
The Bible says there that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And the house being mentioned there is the people of God. That's the house he's talking about there. You see the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 2 where the people of God are referred to as his house. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So the house of God being built today is the people of God. Now how can you and I attempt to put our hands to building God's house in such a way that we do not work apart from him, but alongside of him. I want to suggest three, three ways that we can know we're doing this the right way. The first two, I might even mention more than three. We'll see time-wise. But the first two come right from our text, and then the rest will come from some other places in the Bible that I want to draw in for us. The first is we can know that we're doing this in a way that puts our confidence and trust in the Lord and that we're working with him rather than apart from him if we will sleep the way it mentions here in verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. Psalm 127, verse 2. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. The kind of sleep God is talking about here is not simply the result of sleep falling upon you because you're tired at the end of the day. That may be when it happens, but what we're talking about here is a kind of sleep that is a gift from God and is received from him as a gift. It is actually the kind of sleep that sends a message to heaven, the exact opposite message of the person who gets up in an anxious state and goes to bed way too late in an anxious state. It's the kind of sleep that says, Lord, I am tempted right now in my anxiety to stay awake because I believe that me staying awake, even though sleep is beckoning me to lay down, even though I know that's what I should do now, I am going to stay awake because if I do not, the world is going to fall apart. Have you ever, have you ever done that? I have to stay awake right now because I have these three things that I need to do. And by the time you get to number three, you realize you have four more to do. And you cannot break that cycle of, you can't get off the hamster wheel of convincing yourself that by all means you have to stay awake and do one more thing because tomorrow's going to come. And for you, tomorrow's going to come even earlier than it should because you're going to wake up too early. Now, I'm not encouraging us to be irresponsible and, and be late for our jobs and that sort of thing, or, or if we have little children in the home. And you know, if you're, in fact, if you're a mom of an infant or a newborn, just almost forget everything I'm saying right now, because <laughs> this is, uh, none of this applies. You, you, you have to be awake, and, uh, or, or you, you have to make provisions for your husband to, husband to be awake in the middle of the night, uh, you know, so whatever, you know. There are always exceptions to everything we say. But some of us understand what I'm talking about when anxiety is the thing waking us up too early or sending us to bed too late. 
I do this all the time. And in fact, one of the things I get anxious about is very silly. Uh, you know, we have children, and they're, they're growing up now. Our youngest is eight. But, you know, at least for a long time, as they're younger, we're thinking, man, I, we just got the kids down to bed at 8 o'clock. Now it's adult time. It's me time. And those are some of the most precious hours in the day. It's me time. And so I would find myself just staying up way too late just to have a little more time to be an adult, to be me, to do what I want to do. And, and sometimes I would hear the Lord saying to me, you know, you've had me time for like 30 years. How much me time do you need? You're a parent now, and you've got children, and, and you need to be ready not only to serve them, but to serve many others the next day. You need to go to bed. That, that television show is not that important. Yes, the, the drug of freedom and being able to do whatever I want to do, is, that is intoxicating. But, but I need to know when it's time to go to bed. All right, so we will know... We will know that in our efforts to build the house of the Lord, that we're actually working with him rather than apart from him, when we're not so anxious anymore about everything that we're doing to sustain and protect what's being established, but rather we're able to go to bed at night. We're able to sleep in not too far, but we're able to sleep in as much as we should without anxiety disturbing us on either end of the day. Another, another thing from our text that, that will help us to know that we're on the right path here is we'll always keep an eye toward the next generation as well. Look at verse 3. Children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Now, th there's a picture here of children being released they remain in the quiver for a time, and as one person said, most likely they will be a handful before they're a quiverful. But they are being released ultimately into the world to serve the purpose of God in their generation. And the goal is for them to hit God's target for their lives, that they too might come to know Jesus Christ and love him and serve him faithfully and live a life of discipleship, faithful following of Jesus Christ to help others come to know Jesus that their lives might be eternally blessed. That's what we want when we release our children into the world. And if you've done this enough, some of you have, you know that, there's all, that you can't do things in such a way that you can, that you can guarantee for yourself that those children are going to fly straight when, when you release them. But you have a choice at that point, and the choice is, again, to become overly anxious or to put your hope and confidence in the Lord. I will face the very same choice in a few years. All right, and some of you have been such an encouragement to us as, as those of us with younger children find ourselves looking to the future that way. But we, we, we know and we will need each other's encouragement because, it, you know, the winds blow here and there. And, but we're going we're gonna to pray and we're going to trust that God will, will do these things. I didn't do this in the, in the first service, but let me share with you some of the ways that I pray for my daughters if I, if I can find this, I, I actually wrote like a guide, you know, where I'll, I'll pray for my daughters. I don't, I don't see it here right now, but I, w I actually pray for them. And it's a 31-day guide. So, you know, there's a, a prayer for each day of the month in a, in a 
31-day month. And so today, I'll be, I'll be praying for their discretion, you know. And so I'll, I'll pray, like, you know, God, you said in, in Proverbs chapter 2, I think verse 7, that wisdom and discretion will guide you. Lord, I, I pray for Kira and Brianna and Julia that you would fill them with discretion, that you would guide them by discretion, that they would, they would be wise concerning, in particular, how they use media, social media, that they would be wise in what they share about themselves and others, that wisdom and discretion would guide them. And I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Right, because some of those virtues we want to see cultivated in our children as we're building the house of God, looking toward the next generation, we want to make sure that we're demonstrating faith in God by the way that we pray for them, not just by the programs that we offer, right? And we're going to try to do both, but, we, but prayer is key as well. And so I, I want to tell you guys what's going on in this church. When we talk about a reward and a heritage and a blessing from God, we have in the nursery, 32 children in, in both of our congregations, 32 children at the nursery age, right? So it's from zero to a year, 32 kids. And that, that statistic was taken last month, so it's obsolete by now, all right? And, and, and we were only counting children who have already been born, so we have more than that. We have children who are, who are pre-born at this stage. They're, they're, they're here, but they're just not, they're not born yet. So we, we have at least, I would say, 40 kids right now at the nursery level. Toddlers, we have another 47. Preschool, ages 3 to 5, 77 kids. Kindergarten through the fourth grade, 114. Fifth grade through eighth grade, 46. Ninth through twelfth grade, another 14. That's 330 children. When, when we say to you, that in building the house of God, God wants us to have an eye to the next generation because he's always thinking about the way that the worship of the one true God will extend into the future. We want you to know that we are all going to be needed as a part of this. So as we look to launch things for a high school group this coming fall, we're literally going to need all hands on deck. We're going to need all hands on deck because some of our middle school workers will probably move up and we'll create opportunities there and vacancies there. We'll need all hands on deck. You guys are already doing so much. We're always going back to the same people who are already giving so much of their time, money, etc. But that, that's, what we, that's all we can do. Right? And this is so important that we want to continually give ourselves to it. If we're going to pour out ourselves anywhere, then let's, let's pour out ourselves doing this, building the house of God, and that will have very real and practical implications for our time, our money, things like that. But, but we look forward to those of you who will sign up for that and say, I want to be a part of that. And in fact, God has really turned my heart toward these high schoolers or middle schoolers, kindergarten through fourth grade, and so much of what we're doing on Sunday mornings, even right now with Redemption Hill Kids. So we look forward to all of that, and we'll know that we're moving in the right direction as increasingly we focus on those things to the same way and to the same degree that God does. And then there are some other things that I think will help us know we're on the right track. All right, so let me, let me mention one of those really quickly. And that is if we hold fast to our original confidence. Look with me again at Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 5 and 6, but then going down to, skipping down to verse 14. In Hebrews chapter 3, Verse 5 and 6, the Lord says there, 
that we are indeed the house of God as we read earlier, if, verse 6, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And then in verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ. We know that we're sharing in Christ and in his work. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. If we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. And what that will mean is that we will have to resist trendy ideas and clever methods. Now, this is going to take a little, bit, a little while to develop from the Word of God, but I want to read various portions of the Bible that really help us to see this from God's perspective. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13, this is what the Apostle Paul says. He's speaking about himself and a man named Apollos, a fellow worker, and he says in verse 9, We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Now let each one take care how he builds upon it. And then Paul begins to speak about the things that people trust in to build upon the right foundation. He starts to name some potential building materials, some options, a menu of options that people could draw from. And he uses the metaphor of certain precious metals and then other certain materials. And he says in verse 11, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become manifest or will be shown for what it actually is. You won't be able, pause for a minute, you won't be able to truly evaluate what you have done in the moment, but there is a time coming that will show and reveal the quality of each person's work. For the day, back in verse 13, for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Now, if you put gold, silver, and other precious stones in fire, they tend to be purified. What happens when you put wood, hay, and straw in fire? Okay. So what Paul is trying to say here is that as we build the house of God, not all ideas are equal. Not all things are equal. You cannot put anything at the foundation of a church other than Jesus Christ. You, you cannot. It is a church. Nothing else can go at that level. Even if that thing rightly belongs somewhere else in the house, you do not put shingles at the foundation. You don't build your house on well-taught curtains. You, you, they might belong somewhere in your house, but not at the foundation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the only thing that belongs there. 
And this is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 on down, Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. That is human wisdom. But I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And Paul is contrasting himself to other people who are out there preaching their message. With all kinds of messages that people accepted as the wisdom of the day. And they thought, this is, this is how we ought to live our lives. And he said, no, 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 I pretended to know nothing among you other than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the foundation of the Christian church. And it cannot be displaced or replaced by anything else and, and long remain a Christian church. Verse 6, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age. Verse 13, we impart this wisdom in words, taught not by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. We rely upon words taught not by human wisdom, but by the Spirit of God. This is what we use at Redemption Hill to build the church. And Paul warns Timothy... In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, I'm going I'm to read right through that big number 4 that wasn't there when he wrote it, down to verse 5 of chapter 4. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God, and, and of course that includes women, so that God's people would be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. You are before God's assembled people. Timothy, preach this. Preach the word. There is, this is not like a sport. There's no in-season or out-of-season. Be ready in-season and out-of-season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? For the time is coming, everybody listen closely, when people will not endure sound teaching. Do you think we're here already? The time is now here. People, listen, it's not that they don't ever hear sound teaching. It's that they will not endure it. They refuse to accept it. They want to hear something else. It, Paul says right here, instead, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers who will say whatever they want to hear to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, now, what's interesting about that word, 
is that we actually, it's a cognate. We, we get that English word myth from the Greek word mythos. M-Y-T-H-O-S. Looks very similar. The meanings may be very different, though, from whatever you're thinking when you hear a myth. When you hear the word myth, you might be thinking of some story that's clearly not true. It's just an old fable or something like that. A legend, a Paul Bunyan kind of thing. Yes, I always get John Bunyan and Paul Bunyan mixed up, so I have to make sure I said the right Bunyan. John Bunyan was real. Paul Bunyan, I think he wasn't real. Is that right? I think that's a myth. <laughs> uh, but that's not what, what Paul means when he uses the word mythos in his writing to Timothy. What he is speaking about there is a narrative. A narrative being communicated by someone that they want your entire life to become an outworking of, an enactment of. They're presenting to you a comprehensive narrative or worldview. Here's how you ought to see the world. Here's how you ought to see yourself and your place in that world. And based on this mythos, this narrative, here is what your life ought to look like. And Paul is telling Timothy that for the Christian, that mythos is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the word of God. And you do not build the church by any other mythos. Now I'm going to say some things that will get me in trouble here. But I'm used to that. We could draw a pretty big crowd if we started to tinker with clever methods and popular ideas, popular narratives. We could become like what I like to call the cheerleader for America church. We could do that. You know, where the, the holy days are Good Friday, Easter Sunday, and the 4th of July. We could do that. And look, don't get me wrong, I love this country. I absolutely love this country. If you know me well, you know that. I, I think part of that is because my parents were immigrants from Jamaica, and I, I think unlike most people in the conversation today, like we, we, they actually had something to compare this country to, and it's pretty good here. Is that, does that mean that nobody is having a hard time here? No, who would say that? But America is not exceptional or, or unique in the fact that people in the country are having a difficult time. That's par for the course everywhere in the world. America is exceptional because of its founding principles. My parents knew that instinctively. They came here because of the opportunity afforded to people like them. In their home country, there was no way for them to get ahead or, or move from where they were. They understood that. And so some people choose to, to look at America through a critical lens based on some of the practices, the practices of some of the earliest people here. But if you look at America's founding principles, you'll see what my parents saw. So that's me. I love this country. Don't get me wrong. But the church is not here to return America to its glory. That's not the point of the Christian church. 
but yet we would draw a huge crowd. We'd lose some of you. But if we did the whole make America great thing again, we'd draw a huge crowd. We could do it another way. Do you have any idea what kind of a crowd we would draw if we became, if our, our central message and our foundation became about diversity, inclusion, producing social justice warriors? Do you have any idea? Do you have any idea how many, we lose some of you, but do you have any idea what a huge crowd we would draw? If all we did was sit around and denounce white privilege? That's not the business of the church. Now again, look, some of these things, now when it, when it comes to promoting freedom, especially freedom of speech, when it comes to promoting justice for all people, the church can and should be involved in those efforts. But only one thing belongs at the foundation of a church. Do you understand the difference? And you get the foundation wrong. I mean, there's a tower in Italy that you and I can, can go see if you'll buy the tickets. And, and you will know that eventually you might get a whole lot of people to come and look at it and say, oh, isn't that neat? But it, it, you do not build the church by anything other than Jesus Christ and the gospel at the foundation and the time-tested and true, revealed truth from God. So I, I, I say this on behalf of this church. We, we do not plan at any time in this generation to veer from our original confidence and from the only foundation of the Christian church and from the solid building material of God's word. We do not plan to veer from that in either direction in this generation under the current leadership. And Kobe, when it's, when it's you guys... I'm telling you, Fiore, all of you, we're, we're, yep, Sam, I'm looking at you too. We are looking at you children, and we are trusting and praying that God will put these same convictions, priorities, beliefs, and value systems in you. That is what we are praying for and looking for, all right? So that's one of the things. We, holding fast our original confidence will let us know we're on the right path. And if I can remember it, there is one more thing, and we mentioned it with David and Kara up here. If we keep our eye on the ends of the earth, taking the gospel to places where Christ has never been named before, we know that we are building with Jesus. Taking the gospel to places where it has never been named before, we know that because of what Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 before he went back to heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're baptizing six people this afternoon. And teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And I am with you even until the very end of the age. When you and I step out to support David and Kara, to send them and to reach the unreached peoples of the world, some of whom have never been given a chance to hear about Jesus before, we, we know that we are building not apart from Jesus, but alongside of him. And I'll close with this. I will speak uh, to the believer, and I will also speak to the one who's sitting here this morning is not yet a believer, not yet a follower of Christ. 
you and I can rest and know that the world will keep spinning. We can go to sleep without much anxiety. And I, I want to make an allowance again for those of you who, who have a clinical sort of condition and you're getting treatment and help, medical help for that. That's a different kind of anxiety that you're not choosing. I'm talking about the ones that we choose. But we can go to, to sleep, choose to sleep, without choosing to pick up that anxious toil. Because Jesus, after he died for our sins on the cross, he slept. He slept. And on the third day, he rose and proved that everything he ever told us was right. He proved that just like I can conquer death and put that away, I can put your sin away. It'll never come up before God again against you in judgment. I put it away. It'll never return. You will be accepted by God, fully forgiven, and you will belong to him forever. In fact, Jesus says, you know what? Just like God said to David, you want to build me a house, David? Go read 2 Samuel 7. The Lord said, no, David, I'm going to build you a house. And he begins to to lay out from there the fact that the people of God will be the house of God. So I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a lineage and a legacy. I'm going to build you a house in which I will be pleased to dwell. And, and, and Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. Jesus is still building his house. He's not simply left it to Paul and to people like us. He's building his house actively right now. He says, I will build my church. I will do it, he says. Yes, will Christians do it alongside me? Absolutely. But I'm still alive. I'm still doing it. Jesus says, I will build my church. And he says, I will build it. It's going to happen. Everywhere. It will happen. And never forget, he says, I will build my church. Jesus is not here to build my church. He's not here to build your church. Whatever church you would prefer or want, he's not here to build that. He said, I will build my church, meaning his. That's what he's going to do. And what Jesus is going to do, he's going to determine that based on who the Father sends to him. John 6, 37. All whom the Father gives to me will come to me. And when they come, I'll in no way cast them out. So that is how Jesus is going to build his church through the consistent, unchanging commitment to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, where he offers that perfect life up for sinners like us, his resurrection, where he proves that he is the one and only person who can give us the life that we all need and who can remove our sins from the presence of the Father and make it so that we're acceptable to him. The proclamation of that message without wavering, that's the church he's building. And if that's what you want to be a part of, then welcome to Redemption Hill Church. If you're expecting anything else, I want to be very honest with you. Whatever other priority you may have will never serve as the foundation or, or main message of this church. We, we will probably, I'm trusting now that your heart is being prompted by God in a direction that is very important for him. And so I, I'm pretty sure you will most likely hear all of those other things at some point as we go through the full counsel of God. It will never displace or replace the foundation. And now, speaking to the believer and to the unbeliever, I want to encourage you with this. If you are not yet a part of this house that Jesus is building, I want you to hear First Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5 one more time. 
Jesus actually says there, or speaking through Peter, as you come to him, that is, as you come to Jesus, a living stone who was rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. If you entered this building this morning, not being a part of that spiritual house that Jesus is building, which will stand forever in the presence of God and in which God is pleased to dwell forever. If you, if you were not one of the living stones in that spiritual house, it can all change this morning. It's still morning. How can that change? Well, Peter tells us. As you come to him. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You must come, not simply to this service, to hear a mere man speak. You must come to Jesus. Right now in your heart, you must look at him and say, I believe that you died in the place of sinners on the cross, that I am one of those sinners, that I need what you did, and that if I only come to you now like this, you will forgive and accept me forever. You do that in your heart, and you yourself will now be part of this spiritual house that Jesus is building. And to those of you who have at some time in the past done that and who are currently believers, walked in that way this morning, I want to leave you with this encouragement. Our work for and in the Lord is not useless, it is not restless, and it is not fruitless. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 puts it this way. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and again, that includes my beloved sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, I'm asking that you would, that you would help us to sleep like those who have confidence in you, to rise when we should, like those who have confidence in you, to pray like those who know that only you can accomplish the spiritual results that we seek, to trust you with the lives and the direction of our children, to keep an eye on that next generation and all your plans and purposes for them, to keep an eye on the ends of the earth and the unreached peoples of the world, and to continually support efforts to that end that all might hear and believe. We pray, Lord, also that you would help us as a church, not only in this generation, but for as many as you would be pleased to give us. That, Lord, if we would be here for another two or three hundred years, if you tarry, that, Lord, we would never move from our original confidence and conviction that only you belong at the foundation of this church and that we must build with your word. Give us the wisdom and the endurance that will be needed, the perseverance to resist trendy ideas and the mythos of the culture, all the narratives that call out for our allegiance and that would compete with your voice if we allow them to. Only you, Jesus, especially in, in this moment right now for us, only you can do that. I'm convinced. I ask you to do it. We ask you to do it. In your name we give thanks. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www. 
www.redemptionhill.com.